God, O peoples, and sound his praises abroad, who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. For you have tried us, O God, and you have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net and you have laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. You made men ride over our heads and went through fire and through water. Yet you brought us out in a place of abundance. I shall come into your house with burnt offerings and I shall pay you my vows which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. I shall offer to you burnt offerings of fat beasts with the smoke of rams. I shall make an offering of the bulls with male goats. Come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear, but certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, who has not turned away from my prayer, nor his loving kindness from me. Prayerfully, we will continue in worshiping as we walk through this psalm together. We'll see how far we get, but this morning I wanted to start with a passage in Isaiah and one of these days, I, I'm, I'm working myself up to actually preaching through a, the book of Isaiah. It is the fifth gospel in the scriptures. But there's profound truths that are there. And in this section that is dealing with God's faithfulness to his covenant, his people, Isaiah records these words. And this is God speaking. And the reason why I come to this passage is there are related thoughts and terms that are used here that we find in this Psalm 66. Isaiah writes as he speaks for God, he says, For the sake of my name I delay my wrath, and for the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned, and my glory I will not give to another? It's amazing this passage because there are these constant hammer blows that Isaiah delivers as he speaks for God, as he looks at this man-centered worldview that often we have. But notice the statements that come through these verses. For my sake, for the sake of my praise, for my own sake, twice, how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? These are profound statements that God makes, and what we realize is the centrality of God in His own affections. In other words, the most passionate heart for the glorification of God is God's very own heart. God's desire is to glorify Himself, always and forever. He must, because He's God, but so must we. And when we come to this psalm, this is the reflection that the psalmist has for us, is the fact that our God is the awesome God. Twice we find this in verse 3, Say to God, how awesome are your works. Verse 5, come and see the works of God, who is awesome in his deeds towards the sons of men. And all the way through this psalm, this is the underlying reality that our God is the awesome God. There is no other. And what I love about this psalm is that it calls us to declare this reality to the world. 
Our job is to call the rest of the nations to come and sing praises to Him. Notice verse 1 of, chapter, of Psalm 66. Shout joyfully to God all the earth. This should be our call to beckon them to come and worship Him. Now, I had this thought walking through this psalm, and I've pondered on this for quite some time. But when we look at the biblical vision of God, that He is supremely committed with infinite passion to uphold and display the glory of His name. The challenge then is for us in our lives, are we doing this? Do we have the same passion for God that He has for Himself? God is unique. The psalmist is going to reflect on this through this psalm. And He is the only one in the universe who deserves to be worshipped. Only He is worthy. And this is why we have this constant refrain for us to come back to God and to worship Him and to glorify Him and to exalt His name. Which means that if we truly love others, and this is my resulting thought on this, if we truly love others, then we will help people towards the most supreme beauty, the most profound value, the deepest satisfaction, the most lasting joy, the greatest reward, the most wonderful relationship, the most overwhelming worship, that if we truly love our neighbor, we will lead them toward God. In other words, what I find in this psalm and other psalms and also from the New Testament is that evangelism is not just a one-time thing or an event that we celebrate as a church. It is a lifestyle. It is the way that we live our life and everything about our life should be beckoning others to come and join us as we worship the awesome God. And this is where the psalmist is going to take us in Psalm 66 where he will exhort us to make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. And we're going to call others to come and join us. Now I have to do this, we have to do the context, just so you can get a sense of what's here. And it's interesting because when we look at Psalms, each one has its own context, has a beginning and end in the middle and all of that, and we know that that is so. But the more that I study the Psalms, the more that I realize that there is an overall context. There are five books, and they fit within these books, but there is a relatedness between the various psalms in these books. So if you look at Psalms 56 through 68, you go home and read through these psalms, you will see that these are a series of appeals to the world, right? Of universal praise to God for His powerful deeds and the things that He does in providence in leading the nations. From Psalm 56, there is this growing crescendo that's going to come, and it will end in Psalm 68. But it builds, and we find the same building happening here in Psalm 66. The other thing that's interesting is that when you look at these psalms from 56 to 66, that in these psalms we have the only references to vows being made to God. I find that very interesting. It tells us something about the grouping of these psalms. I'll leave that for you to go home and digest and ponder on and seek the Lord's understanding from. The other thing that's interesting about these Psalms, verses Psalm 66 and 67, is that there is no specific author that's been indicated in these Psalms. In other words, Psalms 66 and 67 are the only anonymous Psalms in Book 2, and it is the first of the non-David Psalms that come since 950, or Psalm 50. 
The title of this psalm is titled The Chief Musician or Choir Director. It is referred to as a song and a psalm. And these two words that introduce this psalm link Psalm 65 through 68. Okay? And again, I'm going to leave that for you to go home and study and think on. But there is a relatedness to all of these psalms. What's interesting about Psalm 66, historically in the church, the Eastern Greek church, they used to read this psalm and it was referred to as a psalm of resurrection. It's very interesting. Possibly because they believe that it's to be understood as a prophetic psalm. In other words, looking forward to the regeneration of the world as the gospel spreads or the truth of God spreads to the Gentiles and the conversion of the nations. We can somewhat see this in the introduction that this might be the direction that it's heading. The immediate context for Psalm 66 is that there is a transition from us and our to I and my. This is important because as the psalmist talks about the purifying work of God in our lives, as he purifies our souls, the psalmist then moves to talk about his own relationship with God. Verse 13, he will enter into his house with burnt offerings, and I shall pay my vows, which my lips have uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. And we move to this personal interaction of the psalmist with God himself. So some have suggested that there are two different psalms here, but it's so abrupt that there's no way to split this psalm and make them two distinct ones. It is one whole psalm, but it's connected together, and there is this steady climb that walks through it. We begin with all the earth, and then all of a sudden the psalmist ends, verse 20, with this, has not turned away his loving kindness from me. This amazing statement about God's faithfulness to the psalmist. So all of this is here. We cannot look at all of it this morning. But this is the context in which we walk to as we come to Psalm 66. But he begins with this exhortation to make glorious his praise, to sing to God, to utter honor to his name and declare this before the world. The big idea then is the awesomeness of God. He is absolutely worthy of our worship and our praise. And this should be reflected in how we live our life. If you notice with me, it is a call to worship. Sing the glory of His name, verse 2. Bless our God, O peoples, verse 8. It is a time of rejoicing. Shout out praises to God and sing out the glory of His name. And bless our God and bless be God. It is all-inclusive. It is a shout of praise for all the earth to join in. And all the earth shall worship Him and will praise Him. And it will also sing His praises to His name. So this celebration and worship is not to just be with us, but it is to spread throughout the world. And over and over we find this reminder. Notice verse 8. Bless our God, O peoples, and sound His praises abroad. Spread these things to the world. And then in verse 16 we see the psalmist say, Come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell you what He has done for my soul. That personal testimony that comes. It is also a song of praise and glorification to God. But it is a missionary song. I find this very intriguing about this psalm that it is focused on missions. It is focused on gospel, if you will, in one sense. It is focused on declaring the greatness of God and the awesomeness of God. And so I'm going to walk through this and we're going to see these truths, if you will, as he lays these out for us. But several things the psalmist is going to do for us. First, he's going to focus on the awesomeness of God and his works of power, verses 1 through 4. Then the awesomeness of God and the works of providence, verses 5 through 7. 
Then the awesomeness of God and his works of purifying souls, verses 8 through 15. And then we have the awesomeness of God and his works of answering prayer. Now you'll notice if you think through this that there is a progression to all of this. And again, he's going to move from the corporate to the individual as he comes to the end of this psalm. But he begins with the fact that God is awesome in his works of power. And one of the things that we need to understand is we understand the sovereignty of God. We must understand that omnipotence goes with this. They necessarily rise and fall together. And this is what the psalmist wants us to understand. And through here, he's going to focus on the power of God in and over creation, his power over the enemies, his power in providence, and then his power in reality. But over and over, he is going to walk through this reality that God is all-powerful. But he is also sovereign because he is going to deal with the nations as he reflects on this in verse 7. He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. He is going to talk about that great deliverance of the nation of Israel from Egypt in verses 5 and 6. He is going to talk about the refining work of God as he moves nations to come into the lives of his people and as he purifies their souls through the affliction that they suffer by the hands of others. But the psalmist helps us to understand that God is behind this. Notice with me and reflect on his words. Verse 9 and following. God is the one who keeps us in life. Literally, it is in the Hebrew, He keeps our soul amongst the living. And He does not allow our feet to slip. Verse 10, For you have tried us, O God, and you have refined us as silver is refined, and you have brought us into the net, and you laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. You made men ride over our heads. Think about this statement. Now, some have tried to figure out which exactly is the time period in which this took place. No doubt, verses 5 and following are dealing with the issue of the deliverance of the nation of Israel from Egypt. But we don't know exactly the incidences that he is talking about in verses 8 through 15. It could be any kind of time period within the life of the nation of Israel because there were several periods of times in which they were refined by opposing nations by those who are enemies of God. Look at the times of the judges. Over and over they experience this kind of affliction. But notice who is in control. You have brought us into the net, verse 11. You have laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. You have made men ride over our heads. We went through fire. We went through water. So the psalmist is going to reflect on the fact that not only God is in control of all the nations, but he has often used those nations to refine his people. But don't miss the final result of this, verse 12, the last line. Yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. Painful? Yes. Affliction? Absolutely. Was there sorrow involved? Yes. But what was the point? For us to experience the abundant blessing of God. But for God to be able to do this, he must be sovereign. He must be all-powerful. And if God is going to reign sovereignly, then he must have all power. He possesses what no other creature possesses, and that is incomprehensible, superabundant power. And it is there for us, and we are to learn lessons from his deliverance of the nation of Israel through the Red Sea and then through the Jordan as they enter into the Promised Land. And as they conquer the nations, those who were living in the land of Canaan, this was a reminder of the power of God in their life and a reminder of the power of God in our life. 
In other words, the resounding thought is our God is the awesome God. And that awesome God is at work in your life and my life. And we must declare his awesomeness to the world. So he starts us off in verses 1 and 2 with the glory of his name. It calls for glorious praise. He starts off with exhorting us to shout joyfully to God. And it's interesting that this particular word, it sounds like our English word hurrah. And this is what the psalmist wants us to do. And it's from a primitive root word and it means tamar or the breaking, if you will. Figuratively meant to split the ears, right? If there's this shrilling cry and scream, right? And you feel like your ears are going to burst. This is what he wants, but he wants it to be joyful. He wants us to shout out joyfully to God and to honor him and to recognize him. And it's also related to the word that is used in reference to the sounding of a trumpet. And it has the relation of victory. Victory. This is how the psalmist begins, is that he wants us to shout this way, but the result of that, right? The result of this, and it comes from the fact of who God is and knowing who he is. Now, I'm going to plant this question on you coming into this section, and we'll dwell on it in a moment. But I had this thought coming into this psalm. How shall one ever be an emissary of this great God who has not first trembled before him with joyful awe and wonder? If we're supposed to take this reality to the world and declare the greatness of our God, right? Then shouldn't that have an impact on us first? Because the realization is if God is not a passion for us and if we are not passionate about God, we're not going to talk about God. I mean, just think about the other things in our life that we are passionate about, things that we experience. What do we do when we respond to that? We go and utter the praise of that thing that we experience. We want others to experience that thing. So we sing its praises, but we're supposed to be doing that to God. And this is what the psalmist wants us to do. It's a very telling psalm when it comes to the issue of missions and evangelism and reaching out to the lost world. In other words, if you want to become a great evangelist, my suggestion is know God. Know everything you can about God. Therefore, don't read books on how to evangelize. Read the book and study the book and understand who God is and be passionate about God and His glory just as He is passionate about His own glory and go out and declare that to the world. But if we're not moved by Him, we're not going to move to be declaring Him. And so this is where the psalmist begins for us. He sings, says, sing glory to His name and make His praise glorious. Some elements I have to show you in these verses. First, there is synonymous parallelism that the psalmist uses, and there is this quasi-chiastic structure. If you look at the center of it, and I'll just tell you this, you can just look at it and see that these symbols look similar. There's just a slight difference in them. They sound somewhat alike as well when you pronounce them in Hebrew. Shemosimu. And these things would catch the ear of the singer, but also catch the eye of the reader. And what the psalmist does is he strings this together. He says, sing out the glory of his name and make glorious his praise. He wants us to focus on the glory of God and the gloriousness of who he is and to make his praise glorious. 
Sometimes I, when we just listen to how we sing, and it isn't that every song is going to be joyful. But sometimes, right, as I think back over my life growing up in the church, sometimes you're listening to God's people and there is sort of this drudgery that, that comes with their singing. It's almost as though if someone were passing by the building, it would sound like we're singing dirges and that somehow we're holding a funeral and not celebrating life in God. But this is what we want to do, right? Is to be joyful in God and to have this bubble up in us, this passion for God and for His glory. And that we don't want to only praise Him, but we want to make glorious the praise of Him. Go above and beyond so that we're like rivers that are overflowing with joyfulness about the greatness of our God. Sometimes we walk away from here and we walk into our week on Monday, right? And it's like we're dragging our heels. <laughs> that gloriousness got left on Sunday and it didn't carry over into Monday. And we start into our work week and already it's a drudgery for us. But what makes it glorious is the God that we serve. It's not the job that we have. It's not the neighbors we live around. It's not the things that we do. It's the relationship that we have with Him. And this is what is to overflow in our life. So what's interesting is that he brackets this first section with singing and also His name because His name is a part of what we are to declare and sing about. And this speaks of the whole manifestation of God, how He revealed Himself to His people, not merely just by names, Jehovah Jireh or Yahweh, if we say it in Hebrew, that he is our provider, but it is all that he has revealed about himself. And so therefore, it is almost synonymous with God himself. In other words, what we are to sing praises to is who he is. Thus, we must know who he is. Otherwise, we cannot sing his praises. So if we want to be missions oriented and we want to be evangelistic and we want to reach the world for God and His glory, we need to be in the Word of God to know who God is so that we can declare who He is. So the invitation then to come and join in this worship, it begins first of all with what He has revealed Himself to be in His name and also then His acts of conquering power. Isn't it interesting that I'm sure that Jerry covered this in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission? But we have the declaration in that exact same passage that all authority and power have been given to Christ and then he sends them out to make disciples of all the nations. What's our job? Our job is to call the world to bow the knee to King Jesus. To come before him and worship him. In other words, we're supposed to call people to worship. The greatness of his power calls for joyful submission. He begins with this in verse 3. He says, Say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will have feigned obedience to you. Now we see that the flip side of this is to understand the fact that a true child of God will offer up submission willingly so. But we also see by the statement here that even God's enemies are going to feign obedience to him. In other words, they're going to be rebellious in their hearts and yet at the same time they are going to acknowledge his greatness. They're not going to have a choice. <laughs> He's God. He's God. This is also very interesting because it sets itself in contrast to verse 4 of that true and sincere submission that is seen in the worship in verse 4. All the earth will worship you and all will sing praises to you and they will sing praises to your name. But what's interesting is we look at verse 3, we also understand that this tells us that there is not going to be a universalism. 
Not all are going to wholeheartedly and submissively worship God. Not all are going to surrender. Not all are going to believe. We know this wherever we take the gospel message, wherever we declare the truth of Jesus Christ, we declare it to anybody and everybody who will listen to us, and then some. But we also know not all are going to believe. It's the painful thing of it, is it not? The grandeur of his reign calls for a universal praise then. And this is what's interesting to me about this psalm. All the earth is summoned to worship God and to acknowledge the greatness of His power. Some interesting thoughts that have come to me, and I've been wrestling with these for quite some time, dealing with the issue of missions. And I'm speaking with a friend of mine who's a pastor when we were out of town, and it's interesting because I was asking about churches in the area because they do this. You know, growing up in the church, we always had Missions Week, right? Missions Month. And you'd walk in the sanctuary and all the flags of all the different nations around the world, right? Hanging on the walls and all of this stuff. And we'd have these moments, right? Or we would go out during the week. And I've done everything from door to door to out on the street evangelism and whatever else, right? And we do these things and we feel like this is what we're supposed to do. It's an event for us. Well, I worshipped and I went to share my, the, my faith on Tuesday night right out on the streets. Or I went down to... 3rd Street Promenade or whatever it is, and I had this event, and then the rest of the week I don't say anything about my faith. And I've grown up in the church and always is sort of the sense that this is the mission for us, is evangelism. Reaching the lost, right? But then I started having this thought. That the main thing that the church is to be about is not missions, it's worship. Now, you can call me a heretic if you want to, but just follow me on this. Worship is the fuel and goal for missions. In other words, it is what starts us off it is this desire to go out and call all the earth to shout joyfully to God, to come and join us in worship. It is the beginning and the end of missions. In other words, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship does not exist. Romans chapter 1. They do not glorify Him as God. They worship the creature rather than the Creator. What's the issue? They don't worship God. See, if it's about solely missions, then it's about man. It's not about man. It's about the glory of God. It's not what we get out of Him. It is what has been deprived of Him, and that is His glory. <laughs> that changes everything, doesn't it? So if I'm going to be a good evangelist, I must be a great worshiper of God. My job is not to go out there and win debates and give the best argument. My job is to go out there and declare how awesome our God is and that all should bow before Him. Not me because I've reasoned better than you or I've argued better than you or that I have better proofs than you. It's simply because I just tell you who he is because that's what it tells me who he is. 
Passion for God then proceeds the proclamation of God. This is my prayer for my kids. That they would have a singular holy passion for God. And then they would go and make his name known through the world. If you're passionate about God, no one has to tell you how to evangelize. When I was a kid, I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior at age seven. From that moment on, I went to tell all of my friends. Maybe I was just too naive to know any better, right? But when we're older, we're more wiser. Now we're actually more jaded. Because when I was young and I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior and He transformed my life, I wanted all my friends to know how amazing He is that there is forgiveness in Christ. And you can walk with a God who created the universe. And my dad would pack up our truck on Wednesday nights and all my friends from the neighborhood would hop in and they would go to Awana's and I would bring them to church on Sunday morning and want them to be a part of the worship that we are a part of. And then all of a sudden we grow up. I'm so much more mature now, have better understanding, and I remain silent. Can I say that we will not commend what we do not cherish? If we don't have a passion for God, we're not going to passionately declare God. This is the most excited I get in life. <laughs> I'm pretty subdued the rest of the time, ask my wife and kids. But when I get in the Word and when I start talking about God, I can't help it. But then I have to go out into the world and I have to remind myself, don't be ashamed. Allow these things to spill over into the lives of others. The psalmist will go on to talk about the fact that God is awesome in his providence. God works providence awesomely in the favor of his people. Verse 20, he ends with this beautiful note that God always cares for us. Not only that, but notice, if you're with, with me, in verses 16, 19, and 20, that he also hears our prayer. Notice, come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his loving kindness from me. God is always there for his people. And there are lessons to be learned from his great deliverance. And he is going to dwell on this in verses 5 through 7. As he talks about the past deliverances of the nation of Israel. And we are all to learn from them. First, those who are saved need to remember the lesson of the Exodus. And isn't it interesting? This was like the foundational moment in the life of the nation of Israel. Their deliverance. How did the Ten Commandments begin? Before there shall not be any other gods before me. Right? How does it begin? His deliverance of the nation of Israel from Egypt. Redemption. Right? And from this statement of redemption, thou shalt not have other gods before me. Such a powerful statement. What is the one thing that always comes up in the Old Testament? The one thing that is just a glaring right sin in the life of the nation of Israel. And that is idolatry. Idolatry. 
So they are to remember the works of God and the way that God has delivered the nation of Israel. No doubt, verse 6, the reference to sea is to the crossing of the Red Sea when they left Egypt. And then the river refers to the Jordan River when they came into the promised land. And he defeated all the nations. And the first battle, Jericho, was all in God's hand. They marched around. They didn't do a thing, but just march around the city. And the walls collapsed. So much to learn from that. And the psalmist wants us to remember these things. But I have to hang on this statement in verse 6. He turned the sea into dry land for safe passage. Just think about that. He turned the sea into dry land. So I remember when I was a kid in Africa. So they, we scorching weather and, and the watering holes where the animals come. We used to go swim there. <laughs> I look back and go, man, what are my parents thinking? But we used to go swim in the watering holes, right? But when it would get really hot, they would dry up. But so we'd go down there, and it's interesting because you could see the bottom, but it was just this thick, goopy mud. And if you tried walking into it, you'd get stuck. And some of me had to be careful because there was quicksand near there. But just think about this statement. He turned the sea into dry land. Yeah, we know the water's parted, right? <laughs> but the ground was dry. And in light of this, then he says, There, let us rejoice in him. In other words, he is exhorting us in these verses to reflect on these things that God has done. We are to live in hope and joy and not dread and not complain. Remember the nation of Israel? <laughs> What do they do? Complain, 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 complain. God moved the nation. He not only delivered them, but they plundered the Egyptians. And this was in the height of the 18th dynasty. This was in when Egypt was at its height of power. God delivered the nation of Israel out of there, and He takes them out, and they come to the Red Sea, right? And they're afraid, and they don't know what's going to happen. And the Red Sea parts, and they all cross over. We're talking two million people. They see all of this stuff and then they walk into the wilderness and they complain and they grouse and they grouse and they grouse and they grouse. The reality of the Red Sea, the past was implausible. We can't go back to Egypt. Pharaoh and his army was bearing down on them. The future, completely impossible. We're stuck by this body of water. We're not going anywhere. And then all of a sudden, right, God works. Just a thought for you. Look at your impossible difficulties as opportunities for God to manifest His infinite power in your life. Enemies bearing down on us. The Red Sea before us. Stuck between a rock and a hard place. Just look at those as moments for when God is going to work in an amazing way in your life. Sometimes I'm like the nation of Israel. Well, if I'm honest, a lot of times I'm like the nation of Israel. All I can see is Pharaoh and his armies, and all I can see is the Red Sea. And I can't see how God is going to deliver me. The psalmist says, I want you to remember, 
Remember what he did. He is the awesome God, and he is that awesome God in your life. The rebellious need to learn a lesson also in verse 7. He says this, and we'll end with this. He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Pharaoh, what a proud man he was. And God manifested his power to him, and he made his name known. Amen? Our God is the awesome God. And I pray that you take the rest of this week to ponder on this psalm. There is so much here. But may the truth of who God is spill over from our life into the lives of others. The more passionate we are about Him, the more passionately we will declare Him to the world. Amen? Robert, would you close the word, brother?